ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jonathan Webb and this is another summer bonus in your Science Show podcast feed. Today I'm looking back on a busy year in science news with two top brains from my team in the RN Science Unit. I'm joined by science reporter Belinda Smith. G'day, Belle. Hello, Jonathan. And science journalist and EP of Science Digital, Janelle Wiley. Hi, Janelle. Hi, Jonathan. Let's start with, I just want to know what kind of year you think it was in science news. It seems to me like we didn't have the one or two huge stories that everyone will remember and keep talking about, like the first ever, you know, picture of a black hole or a cloned you know, animal or a gene-edited human or anything like that. How did the year strike you overall? Obviously, there was a lot of hype about AI, maybe too much hype about AI for where we are. Belle, any thoughts on what sort of a year it was in science? Yeah, look, I don't think there is such a thing as too much hype about AI because it's permeated every aspect of science, from health, diagnosing people with diseases or conditions, to astronomy, where they're using AI to help filter out, you know, interference from the atmosphere, from pictures that are snapped by, you know, Earth telescopes. So I feel like AI is everywhere already and the hype is just the beginning. Janelle, any reflections on the year overall? Yeah, look, I agree that AI is having a moment, but we must remember not to overlook those sort of stories that are bubbling along and continue to bubble along. Things like avian influenza, which really made its mark earlier this year, billions of birds dying. It's it's a conservation tragedy. But the other thing, of course, is that 2023 is the hottest year on record. And so we must not take our minds off the biggest existential crisis that is actually affecting humanity at this point in time. Two huge stories. You're right. We actually covered those in a bit more detail a couple of weeks ago, and you can find that dip into the environment news of the year on the ABC Listen app. So let's look at a few science stories in particular. Bell, physics. There was some kind of big news about very small and mysterious uh, elements and particles. <laughs> no, there was indeed. So this was an experiment run at CERN, and the, I guess the big result is that antimatter falls just like ordinary matter, which, you know, on the face of it doesn't sound that exciting, but it actually forms the crux of a really big mystery in physics. What is antimatter for people who aren't particle physics aficionados? No, that's totally fair. So antimatter is the same as ordinary matter, but it carries the opposite charge. So for hydrogen, which is made of a proton and an electron, so protons positively charged and electrons negatively charged, antihydrogen is made of a negatively charged antiproton, so many double negatives, and a positive version of an electron called a positron. And so this uh, project at CERN called Alpha-G wanted to look to see if gravity could pull antihydrogen down to Earth the same way as it does normal hydrogen. So they held big clouds, when I say big, I mean like in antimatter terms, a lot of antimatter. So what, like a a little cloud... You know, a little cloud, a little cl- cold cloud. A few millimetres across or something? Antihydrogen. Yeah, it's in a long tube, but it's held in a magnetic field. Right. And then they remove the fields and just look to see where this antimatter went. Because when matter interacts with ordinary matter, it makes 
a little burst of energy, some, some rays. And so they could detect that, those energetic bursts and see where the antimatter went. And the antimatter fell the same way that normal hydrogen would. This is interesting because let's go back a bit, 13.8 billion years to the Big Bang. So during the Big Bang, physicists think that there should have been equal parts of matter and antimatter created. Right. But like we haven't seen this antimatter. We don't know where it is. We haven't spotted it. We haven't seen any signs of it. Where is this missing antimatter? And so one of the theories was maybe antimatter doesn't feel the pull of gravity like normal matter does. Maybe it's repulsed by gravity. And so it's sort of far, far away. We can't find it. It's There's like an antimatter universe out there somewhere. Right. So if the antimatter had fallen upwards in that tube, that might go to explain why it's not just lying around the place. Totally, yeah. Or maybe even if it just fell, felt the pull of gravity less strongly, even that would maybe go some way to explain it. But unfortunately, the mystery remains and that missing antimatter remains missing. So if there's none of it around or barely any of it around, and that's one of the big mysteries, where does it come from if there's a little cloud of it in CERN in Switzerland for them to do these experiments? Well, at CERN, there's this thing called the Antimatter Factory. They make antimatter and this crew, they didn't originally want to go out and have a look at you know gravitational effects on antimatter. They wanted to probe the internal structure of antimatter, but they got really good at making it and accumulating it. And so they decided, oh, let's, you know, do these drop experiments. Funnily enough, there are a couple of other groups also there whose sole focus is to look at gravity's effects on antimatter. So this group, Alpha G, got there first, which I imagine would have made for some um, awkward Christmas parties. No doubt. Janelle, you had a story that was more biological than, than physical and looks back into the past and, and has a musical bent. <laughs> yes, we looked at the DNA of Beethoven. Now, Beethoven was not a very well man. He he had a hearing loss that started in his early 20s and then he, he died when he was 56, nearly 200 years ago in 1826. And people have wondered about well, what killed him? Why was he so sick? He used to complain of gut ache and he really, really wasn't a, a well man. So what researchers did is that they studied some of his DNA from hair locks. Now, in the 19th century, it was very common to give hair to people as a, as a token of friendship. It was also very common in the 19th century to drink a lot of alcohol instead of water because the water quality wasn't good either. But we'll, we'll come back to that. But there's a lot of these hair locks around and people had wondered about, well, can we analyse them to see what happened to Beethoven? So researchers collected around about eight locks of hair and sequenced some of the genome. And they also did a genealogy tree as well, so to be able to track them down. And so then they were able to match the DNA to work out which were Beethoven's locks and which weren't. And that's really important because one of the locks of hair that had been used previously to say that Beethoven died of lead poisoning actually belonged to a woman and was <laughs> no relation to Beethoven whatsoever. So what did what did they learn about what he in his in his actual Beethoven's male DNA from the, these uh, you know correct hair locks? They ruled out things like celiac disease. They ruled out things like irritable bowel syndrome, and they also found no variants for his hearing loss. 
But what they did find is that they found one gene in particular that would have made him susceptible to liver disease. And so if you keep in mind that he used to drink a lot and he documented this in his diaries, he'd go out with his friends at lunchtime Beyond the recommended uh, weekly consumption of standard units. Yeah, absolutely. So that mix of that one gene variant and alcohol was probably not so great for Beethoven. Another story in a, another primate, but not a human, and maybe not quite as musical, Bell. What did we learn about chimpanzees in 2023? Oh, look, we don't know what sort of music chimpanzees like. They might be massive fans of whatever. But anyway, so this story is amazing to me because there's these fundamental aspects of these animals that are really well studied, like chimpanzees, that we've just never noticed before. And this one is about menopause in chimpanzees. And this story comes from Uganda from the Kabale National Park. And there's a research site called Ngogo. And this has been going on since the 1990s. So this is a really, really, really long research project where a couple of Americans went over and they've been tracking these chimpanzees this whole time. And because this forest is really well protected and it's regenerated substantially, there's lots of food. So these are exceptionally long-lived wild chimpanzees. Their average life expectancy is a bit less than Beethoven's, so they're at 33 years, but that's still twice that of other wild populations. And so over the decades, they followed these chimpanzees, noted things like when they stopped having babies and collected a lot of urine, heaps of chimpanzee urine. I mean, look, science is not always the most glamorous thing, but um, this is what they did. And by collecting more than 500 samples, they found hormones in older female chimpanzees, ones that had stopped reproducing, change in much the same way as humans do when they go through menopause. So things like estrogen dropped, other hormones like follicle-stimulating hormone increased, which is what you see in us. Does this suggest that there is an evolutionary role here, that chimpanzees have kind of evolved to live for a long time and have a phase of their life after they've finished producing, you know, baby chimpanzees? Or is it just that in this colony, as you say, they're living longer than average, longer than chimpanzees kind of typically do in the wild, and it's kind of an accident of this particular location in this colony? This is kind of a, a little group which might be representative of chimpanzees pre, you know, humans going in and really stuffing up their habitats. Right. And so there's a couple of hypotheses as to why menopause happens. So one's called the grandmother hypothesis, but doesn't seem to happen in chimpanzees. Once a female has babies, she doesn't really care for the grandchildren at all. But then there's this <laughs> like less kind of lovey-dovey, less family-friendly uh, hypothesis, which is called the reproductive conflict hypothesis. And so if life's a bit tough, you know, resources are limited, you take yourself out of the reproduction game, which then lets your kids mate, which sort of is makes more sense to me and maybe less nice. Right. But this is what they think may be happening here in the chimpanzees. So it's more of a, like, the fact that you live a long time and you're still around, the numbers game of evolution favours you stopping reproducing so that your kids can have access to the resources and then produce babies of their own. Yeah, that's right. Fascinating. If we zoom out from, you know, the biological world uh, altogether, from uh, Beethoven's DNA and the chimpanzees out to kind of earth science and planetary science, what are some of the big findings you both saw this year in that realm? Bell first, what was your pick of the kind of earth sciences? 
This one that I chose was about the Hangatonga Hangahape volcano, which there was this massive eruption from a volcano in Tonga, sent a plume of ash and rock and vapour up into the atmosphere. There was a tsunami and a sonic boom that travelled around the world twice. But that all happened above the water. So what happened beneath the waves? And so a bunch of... uh, oceanographers and uh, earth scientists decided to find out. It's an underwater volcano to begin with, right? So it sent all this stuff up into the air and they're looking at what happened after it all crashed back down into the ocean effectively. Yeah, exactly. So they calculated around six cubic kilometres of pulverised rock went straight up. Wow. That's 12 Sydney harbours or Sid Harbs, as I like to call them. That's a lot of airborne rock. That's a lot of rock. And then as all that rock dropped back into the ocean, it ran down the sides of what was left of the volcano. And as it tumbled along, it picked up an extra Sydney Harbour's worth of material and wicked that along too. And this is all under the surface of the ocean? All under the surface, under hundreds of metres of water. And this underwater landslide, it crested ridges and sloshed around valleys, only petering out about 100 kilometres from the caldera itself, but not before it crushed almost 200 kilometres of comms cables, communications cables. But, you know, by sort of calculating the time it took between the explosion and the communications being cut, they could calculate that that underwater landslide, that debris flow, was travelling at an average of 122 kilometres per hour at parts. Wow. It's good to know what might happen Whether they can stop it from happening, that's another thing. There's not much you can really do with cables on the seafloor. But um, what should be happening is some better volcano monitoring, putting seismometers on the seafloor just to measure the rumbles and grumbles going on. Janelle, looking beyond our planet, what's been happening in the solar system? There's been a fair few things happening. Jupiter got some new moons. and one Got of, some new moons? Like got, they popped into existence? Yeah, we've discovered 12 new moons. That right. takes Jupiter's tally now to 95. So they've been there for a while, but we've just clocked them for the first time. Exactly, exactly. And a moon that we've known about for a long time, Europa, we found carbon on that. So that's really exciting for future missions to look at what could be underneath its icy surface. Interesting. Saturn got even more new moons. <laughs> Who's got, got the most? Because it's a bit of a tussle, isn't it, between Saturn and Jupiter as to who has the most moons in our books at any one time? At the moment, Saturn is king. But the more exciting news, I think, and for one of my favourite planets, is Venus. And we've actually discovered the first direct evidence that Venus's volcanoes are still active. Well, at least they were active in the 1990s when the Magellan spacecraft flew past. The atmosphere of Venus is like chock-a-blocks full of carbon dioxide and even worse, sulfuric acid. So you wouldn't exactly kind of want to visit there. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's a it's, bit of a hellhole, but there's volcanoes actively contributing to that sort of mess of an atmosphere still. Yeah, that's right. And this was actually an interesting COVID Project. So while the rest of us were baking sourdough, (laughs) one astronomer in particular decided to go back and have a look at his Magellan data that was stashed on CDs. But at that point in time, there wasn't really the technology to sort of like really sort of like interrogate all of the the data that they got from that mission in the early 90s. They couldn't get any new data anyway, so he uh, went back through the old stuff. Exactly. 30-year-old data and he started looking at it. And where do you look for a volcano? Well, you look for a volcano around 
where they think is the most volcanically uh, active area, which is a place called Mons Mart. He looked at uh, the difference between data from over, I think, two years and what he found is that on one year there was this, you know, spherical kind of caldera and then around about sort of like six months later it was peanut-shaped and it had grown. So this kind of like volcano is, is very similar to the volcanoes, the shield volcanoes of Hawaii. And when we see this on Earth, it indicates that there's been an ongoing eruption there. So that is the first right. so first it's the same kind evidence. of same kind of signature on Venus. Same kind of signature on Venus, yeah. And then the implications for that, that's got with sending missions to Venus in 2031. So we'll be able to interrogate that a lot more sometime down the track to sort of see what that really means. And you've got to remember Venus is one of these planets. This could be its last gasp of anything happening before it became a big greenhouse planet. And it gives us a little bit more of an idea how a planet like that evolved and how our solar system evolved. And how it ended up. And how it ended up. The way it is. Yeah. yeah, right. Fascinating. What about even further away, beyond the solar system in uh, galaxies far, far away? Very briefly before we wrap, what was your pick of the findings from further out in space? It is a year since, or just over a year since uh, the James Webb Space Telescope started sending its data back. And we've had lots of different teams interrogating that data. It was a little bit of a race there for a while. But of course, one of the things that everybody was looking at was trying to find these early galaxies just a few million years after the Big Bang. So the telescope uses infrared light and that basically detects longer wavelengths, so the red wavelengths. And then when something is so far back in time, light shifts, it becomes a longer wavelength into the redder part of the spectrum. So what you're looking for is something called redshift. And so what Australian astronomers did is that they found a group of interesting looking things that were very bright in the redshift area. They just use a technique called photometry and that just looks at the brightness that gives us a little bit of a mass. And they found these interesting blobs. And that's the interesting thing too. Like we've been stunned by all of these, you know, amazing photos from James Webb, but the really, the most fascinating ones are just these little red just, blobs. Just a bit blobby. Yeah. But very old and very far away. They think that they might have formed around about between 500 million and 700 million years after the Big Bang, but they shouldn't really exist because they're a lot more massive than they predict. They've got as many stars as the solar system packed into an area about 30 times less it gives us an idea, but they must have been really ultra-efficient at using gas at that early point in time. Now, these galaxies, they still need to actually be confirmed. So what the researchers did is they used, just used photometry. And so what that does is that gives us an idea that, yes, there's something bright there, but what is it? But we don't know exactly what the distance is. You need to use spectroscopy to do that, and that actually sort of like divides up the wavelength. So that still needs to happen for those galaxies. But in August, a different group found a galaxy which they've named Maisie after the astronomer's daughter. Nice. And they have used both techniques, and they have confirmed that that galaxy formed around about 390 million years after the Big Bang. Wow. So the, the whole universe is like a bit over 14 billion years old and we're now inside the first half a billion years. That's right. And so Maisie's galaxies 
is one of the four oldest galaxies that we know of now, thanks to the James Webb. So we have to say that the James Webb is really paying off in bucket loads, in galaxies. It's, it's transforming our view of what that early universe looked like. JWST still bringing in the, in the goods one year down. Thank you very much, Belle, Belinda Smith and Janelle Wiley for helping us recap 2023 in science. No worries. Yeah, my pleasure. That's it for this extra episode of The Science Show. We've got one more bonus download coming up for you and a regular science show in the meantime with Robin Williams. I'm Jonathan Webb. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.